Okay, our reading today is from Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, where's Matt Ackerman? See in the back? We good? Open seats? Are we good? Also, I had a request. Is the air conditioning on, Matt? Okay. Maybe it was personal. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Midtown 12 South. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, for reading our passage for our sermon today. Before we uh, dive into it, would you pray with me? King Jesus, uh, In a brief moment of uh, sanity and faith, we come and we place place ourselves beneath uh, your word. And um, I know we're all so tired of not only talking to ourselves, but listening to ourselves. And so uh, we we need the the fog to be cleared uh, to hear you speak to us, that we might listen to you. And so would you do that now through your word and through your Holy Spirit? Come and um, rub in some gospel salve to our wounds that we may be made whole and made new uh, even this morning. Would you awaken our affections this morning for Jesus by showing showing us who he really is, that when we see him uh, for who he really is, we will know who we really are too. And so regardless of what drew us in here this morning, whether it was guilt or fear, or joy, or pride. Um, All of us are desperate for a fresh encounter with the real Jesus, and that can happen through your word and through your spirit. And so we we ask that you do that now. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So welcome uh, to Midtown 12 South. We are in our fall series, walking through the book of Colossians. Uh, We're gonna spend about two and a half months in this little book of Colossians. It's only about two and a half pages in our Bibles. And this book is power packed. We're, We're just walking through it kind of one or two chunks at a time. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was a church planner. Uh, He planted churches all over the Roman Empire. Uh, He actually did not plant the church in Colossae. He planted a church in Ephesus. The book of Ephesians is written to them. The church in Ephesus planted this church in Colossae. This is a a small town, small city, a small church. And Paul is actually in prison in Rome when he writes this. And so he's writing this letter across the Mediterranean Sea to another world, essentially, to this small church in Asia Minor in the town of Colossae. 
He planted the church that planted them. A, a good way to think about this is, is this is kind of Paul writing to his spiritual grandkids. Uh, this, is, this is like his children in the faith planted this church, and now he loves these children in the faith because they, they came from his children in the faith, and he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to, um, to, to, to lift them up and to uh, strengthen them. But what he says at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter is I'm writing this whole book to mature you in the faith. I'm writing this whole book to grow you and to grow you up and to strengthen you and to bring you to completion in what he continually calls the mystery of the gospel, which is why we're, we're calling our series on Colossians Maturing in the Mystery of Grace. And again, we said this a couple weeks ago, but it's not mystery like a detective that is trying to find clues to solve mystery. It's a mystery that is, is profound and inexhaustible. We won't ever be able to plumb out the depths of this mystery. And, and Paul knows this, this mystery of grace is what the church in Colossae, the church in Nashville, the church at Midtown needs to mature, to grow, and to grow up in the faith. And so, each line of this book, each little section that we're walking through, please don't forget the goal of Paul who wrote this to his spiritual grandkids is that you would mature. So everything he says is aimed at that end. Everything he says is trying to grow his children and grandchildren up in the faith and in the mystery of grace. So our section that Rebecca read for us, verses 9 through 14, uh, Verses 9 through 20, which we'll get there next week, but verses 9 through 20 in the original Greek of ancient Greek that, that Paul wrote this letter in, verses 9 through 20 is one run-on sentence. No, no punctuation. Uh, it would drive you Enneagram 1's mad. But he, he's, he's, he's writing and he's just having all these thoughts, all these sporadic, he's, he's very ADD. What we're looking at in verses 9 through 14 is just 100 straight Greek words, no punctuation. He's just writing just kind of sporadic, seemingly sporadic uh, stream of consciousness. The, the moment that came to mind for you 90s film fans is Ace Ventura. Uh, when Ace is asked, uh, if you remember, um, what do you know about Ray Finkel? And he says, soccer style kicker, you know, and then he goes on into this, string, this five minute string of all the facts about Ray Finkel. Um, that's kind of what, hey Paul, tell us about the mystery of grace. And he just kind of spits out um, lots and lots, hundred straight words uh, with no punctuation, moving rapidly from one idea to another. So it's kind of hard in this opening passage that Rebecca read for us to really try to get a sense of like, what's, what's he talking about? It seems like I'm talking to a, like a child that doesn't really know, you know, butterflies and, and wagons and soccer ball and, and sunshine. It's like, what is, what is Paul trying to say? And so we need to start at the beginning to see what Paul is trying to get us to understand, how he's trying to mature us and mature the church through this little passage. So verse nine, this is how it all begins, this stream of consciousness for Paul. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul says, hey church, I'm praying for you and I'm praying that you would be filled up with the knowledge of his will. Quick question, can you in the back read the, read the size font we got on the board up here, we good? Great, thank you. So knowledge of his will, Paul starts his prayer by saying, I'm praying that you church will be filled up with the knowledge of his will. And if you're Christian in here and you speak Christianese, you know that when you hear God's will and Paul goes, oh, I want you to be filled up with the knowledge of God's will, we immediately have a category for that. 
We immediately think something about it because of how we were raised and, and how we like to think about ourselves in light of Scripture speaking to us. We all tend to think about God's will very individually, where we think when Paul's talking about God's will, we're asking, what is God's will for my life? That's the question we ask. Oh, God's talking about, or Paul's talking about God's will. He means what is God's very specific will for my life vocationally? Like, should I be a veterinarian or should I be a teacher? Is anybody asking that? Is anybody wondering about those two opposite ends of the vocational spectrum? So he, we think that when Paul says God's will, that we would be filled up with the knowledge of God's will, we read it through our individual lenses. We think about the self. We think about how does God's will direct my life vocationally or what should I name my children or what, uh, who should I marry? And he's got a very specific will for my life. And we need to be very clear, the Bible does have that. The person of David in the Old Testament, he was very specifically called to be the king over Israel. Moses in the Old Testament, he was very specifically called to lead the Israelites out of bondage. But we end up reading it so self-focused, so individually, that we castrate verses like Jeremiah 29, 11. You've Pinterested it, I know. You've, you've Instagrammed it, I know. That where Jeremiah the prophet says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. And we read that singularly. I know the plans you have for me. I know what you're talking about for my life, plans to give me a hope and a future. But if you read that story in Jeremiah, the people who receive those original words, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future, it's a plural you. It's you all. It's the community. And guess what happened to the original listeners of Jeremiah 29 11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. Those people were in bondage for 70 more years and died as slaves. They didn't get to see, man, a hope and a future and a beautiful thing. No, God's saying, I know the plans I have for my people, and it's going to take a long time for all that to come into fruition. But we read that verse and we go, what's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do with my life? God, help me make perfect decisions so that I can get a perfect life. And, I, and then we begin to think that God's will is this mysterious, mystic, concealed thing that we've got to pray more and knock on the door more and become more spiritual and God will reveal to me his very specific will for my life so that I don't have any pain. So that when I make the perfect decisions that is God's perfect will for my life, I will, have it, I will be able to control my life, I'll get the outcome that I want, I'll get the income that I want, I'll get the spouse that I want and the children that I want. Each decision now has to be perfect because we read this so individually. So when Paul says praying that you would be filled up with the knowledge of God's will, he's not talking about this. Because in this paradigm, God's will becomes a bullseye. And we think I've got to hit all the decisions in my life perfectly, right on the number, right in the center of the target. And when I do that, then all the things that I want to go well will go well. And so I've got to marry the exact right person and I've got to do the exact right job that is his perfect will for my life and I've got to be in the exact right city at the exact right time and make all the right decisions. I've even got to name my kids the perfect name so that their life doesn't turn out awfully. What's behind our desire to hit God's will like a bullseye is that we believe in order to be blessed, content, and safe, we've got to make perfect decisions and we believe in that paradigm that God is hidden, that God is far off, and I haven't cracked the code yet on how to hear his perfect, specific will for my life. 
I read a story this week about a tourist group in Iceland that was getting kind of a bus tour and a hiking tour through some volcanic canyons. And they get back in the bus and they're driving back to the hotel and they, and they realize that someone's missing from their group of like 100 or something. And so it's, it's pitch black, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night and they, they, they now gotta go back to the volcanic canyon and try to find this person who's missing. And they get on the loudspeaker on the bus and they, they announce what this person's wearing, you know, white blouse, this woman had on a white blouse and a green hat. We're all looking for this woman with a white blouse and a green hat, we gotta go find her, get our flashlights out, we gotta go find her. Till it's 3 a.m. and they realize the woman who they're looking for has been with them the entire time. She got back on the bus, but before she got back on the bus, she changed clothes, and when she heard the description of the missing person, she had no idea that, oh yeah, I was wearing a white blouse and a green hat, but I changed, and now everybody's looking for me. <laughs> and here's, here's uh, what that, what that it, how, how that illustration fits perfectly. Do you know how often we go looking for God's will for my life? I've got to hit this bullseye, and he goes, hey, it's been on the bus with you the entire time. It's not as concealed and hidden. You don't have to hike down into some volcanic canyon and find it and pray the right magic prayer to get the very specific will so that you have a perfect pain-free life. We imagine in this paradigm, we love believing that God has nothing better to do than to dream up and plan out a pain-free life for me, but he must be kind of cruel because he's not really telling me how to get there. And so we're door A or door B, and what happens if I turned right and I should have turned left? And oh my gosh, I married the wrong person, and so the rest of my life is gonna be awful because I made the wrong decision when I was 22, and that really set my life on a trajectory. And now if, if I had never made that incorrect decision, now I wouldn't have so much pain. And so we write this narrative into every future decision then. It's gotta be perfect. And God would look at us and say, hey, my will doesn't work quite like that. It's not as hidden and as mysterious and as concealed as you think it is. So what is God's will? Well, a will, plainly speaking, a will is a want. A will is a desire. And biblically speaking, and it's not just true all throughout scripture, but biblically speaking, there are two categories of God's will. Not two wills, but two categories for God's will. The first, and we'll see it in this passage, is God's pre Receptive will, root word there meaning precepts. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second category for God's will is God's decretive will. And don't run away with too many of these seminary terms. Just trust me that we're gonna explain this, okay? So first and foremost, God's preceptive will. This is the will. What would God desire for his creation and his creatures to be and become? What are his precepts? What are his laws? What are his commands? Because what he's commanded is what he wills or what he desires for his creation to be and to become. Paul would reframe the question for us here. God, the Bible would reframe the question for us here. Not so much asking, what should I do with my life? But rather, what kind of person should I be? That's the question. You wanna know whether you're walking in God's will or not? It's not so much, did I make all the right choices? It's, who are you becoming? What kind of person are you? Regardless of your circumstances or the bullseyes that you've missed in your life, who are you? What are your virtues? What's your character? What kind of person are you in all the decisions that you're making? Here's what Paul goes on to tell us. 
in his version of God's preceptive will. He says, I long for you, I pray for you to be filled up with the knowledge of God's will. And he goes straight into the first category, starting in verse 10. We throw out verse 10 again, Liz. I don't know what slide it's on. Let's find it. Verse 10 starts, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. What does it mean to walk in God's will? What is God's will for my life? Paul just told you his preceptive will would say that you walk in a worthy manner. He would say that you bear fruit in your life. He would say that you have endurance in the situations you walk in, that you walk in with patience, that you walk in with joy, and that you're thankful. I'm sure I missed a couple. This is what Paul says, hey, you wanna walk in God's will? I want you to be, I want you to grow up. I want you to be filled up with the knowledge of his will. What's his will for my life? It's not should you be a veterinarian or a teacher. It's, hey, is this who you're becoming? Is this the kind of person that you are regardless of all the bullseye decisions that you may have missed? Because God's will for you is that you, this is his desire, this is his will for his creation is that they would become these kind of people. This is God's desire for your life. This is what God wants to see you grow into. He's made his will known. It's not hidden, it's not concealed, it's not a mystery, it's not far off where you gotta go hike in a canyon to find it. He's told you that you and I would be a people, if we belong to him, that we would be a people marked by these virtues, following his precepts, his laws and his commands. And for our day, man, when we come into this way of thinking about what is God's will and we're only thinking about the self, where every decision then has to be perfect because so much is riding on this decision, so much contentment and so much joy and so much money, so much happiness is riding on this decision, please hear the invitation and the freedom of not seeing God's will so small like a bullseye, but seeing it as, I've already made my will known to you. There is no secret hidden agenda from God to keep his will a secret. He's saying, I've made it known. And it's not about your ability to make a perfect decision. This is the description of what your life should begin to look like when you join his kingdom. Because do you know that regardless of where God has you presently, regardless of where God has you in the current day, whatever circumstances you're walking in, you can still walk in those things. You can still be more grateful. You can still be more joyful. You can still be more patient. That to be walking in God's will doesn't look like you making sure that you picked this perfect, perfect spouse or the perfect vocation or the perfect major or the perfect place to eat dinner tonight. Like your contentment is not riding on your ability to do that. You're not that important. What God is saying, you wanna know my will for your life? It's that you would walk in my precepts. So you would grow up, it's that you would mature. So you would begin to look and love more like Jesus. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, wrote a book several years ago called The Road to Character. And he breaks this down where essentially there's two versions of me. And one version of me loves to make my decisions focused on this because I believe in making perfect decisions and in making all the right choices and in going to the right school and getting the right job and marrying the right person and spending my money the right way, that behind all that is perfect happiness. And so I have to make these decisions to get all the happiness that I want when what the real version of me, the truer version of me, there's another version of me that David Brooks would say, no, 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 no. What the mature person knows is that life is not all about my happiness. And so it's not about me making decisions to get happy. There's a truer version of me that to grow in virtue and to grow in character, that's what I was made to do. 
There's a version of me that only aims for happiness, and there's a version of me that knows that happiness is not what life is all about. And in the bullseye thinking on God's will, we believe that contentment and and significance and and pain-free living is behind the door of hitting God's will on the bullseye. And so what happens to many of us who go down the rabbit trail of trying to make perfect decisions is that we end up in excruciating despair, we end up in hopelessness, we end up in the paralysis of analysis, trying to figure everything out and trying to play out every possible end road for the decisions that we're making or the doors we're walking through. Well, if I choose door B, then when I get there and I do six months into this, this decision, then what if I start to feel this? Well, then I guess I could maybe go back this way or maybe it would lead me over here. Do you realize how exhausting it is to try to make sure you know how to make every decision perfectly? That the experience of focusing this way is exhausting, it's taunting, and at the end of the day, it's joyless. Because every decision has so much pressure because perfect contentment is behind those decisions. We want perfect contentment and we believe, we believe that perfect contentment rests on our ability to make perfect decisions. And so we boil down God's will into this thing that we believe there's only one path and I've got to get it all right. And this God who won't reveal this perfect path to my life to me must be cruel. We start believing things not only about ourselves but about God when we do this. We make pro-con lists. We weigh all the possible outcomes and we're restless and afraid. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, Screwtape Letters is a book about uh, an uncle demon writing books to his nephew demon uh, about how to tempt and taunt and guide and direct uh, human subjects into evil and, and away from God. And, and in chapter 15 of that book, he talks about how uh, as humanly speaking, humanistically speaking, if you remove God from the equation and faith from the equation, there really is only kind of one stance that a human can have in looking at the decisions of their future. And it's either with fear or pride. That I think I have the ability to make perfect decisions and therefore make my life the way I want it to, or I'm terrified that I don't. And so the demons are saying, keep the humans thinking that way. Keep them thinking that they have to make perfect decisions or that they can. Is it possible that our demand for the bullseye, when I hear terms like God's will and I immediately go to, what's his will for my life? What are the decisions I'm supposed to make? Is it possible that your enemy, Satan, is the one who's causing you to think that way? Is it possible that he wants you to be so obsessed with making perfect decisions that we're joyless and restless and afraid because of it. When over here, when I lean into what, it, what is his will for my life, he's let me know that regardless of my circumstances, this is how he would have me live, these are the fruits of my life. Do you realize how liberating that is? Because now I know what his will is for me and I'm not caught up in having to make a perfect decision for my contentment or for my joy. This invitation to walking in God's preceptive will for my life is actually so freeing because it's not tied to my circumstances. I know some of you have been through awful things and you've got regret over decisions that you made and you're caught up in trying to undo those decisions from the past to make sure you don't make those same decisions going forward and there's some wisdom in that, but listen to how your enemy would be taunting you. Don't ever make a bad decision again or you'll be in pain. And what the call for, for, for kingdom members is, what the call for God's member is, is where you are right now is where, God ha- is where God has you. Would you walk in his will for you? What's his will for me? To be full of patience and joy and gratitude, bearing fruit in my life. 
So wondering whether or not you're walking in God's will has so much less to do with asking, have I made all the right decisions to achieve perfect contentment? And so much more to do with what kind of person am I? Have I become more patient this year? Am I more grateful? Am I bearing more fruit in my life? This is category one of God's will. It's not as mysterious or cryptic or unknowable as we believe that it is. Paul just told you, you want to know God's will? It's on the bus with you. You don't have to go into the canyon to find it. It's been here the whole time. Here it is. And then there's a second category of God's will. And this is, again, a, a, little, a little bit seminary, a little bit high theology, uh, but don't get lost in the term. God's second kind of will, as revealed in Scripture, the second category of his will is his decretive will. And you should hear in that term itself kingly language. Do you know who has decretive wills? Kings. Because kings make decrees. And I know none of you all have lived underneath an autonomous monarchy king, but do you know what happens when kings make decrees? It happens. When the king decrees something, it goes forth. When the king decrees something, the, the crowd doesn't vote on it. When the king decrees something, his decrees happen. So the question here in looking at this category of his will is not what kind of person should I be, but is asking this question, what has God done? That's what it means to look at his, the second part of his will. What has God done? Because what God wills, what God has willed, he has made happen and will make happen. Because kings, when they decree something, it happens. Look at how Paul shifts, even in his, his run-on sentence, he shifts from God's preceptive will immediately into God's decretive will, the things that God has decreed to take place for his people and for his kingdom. Starting in verse 12, can you throw that back up there, Liz? Starting in verse 12, he's finishing out the preceptive will and he says, giving thanks to the Father, and then it's like Paul has a light bulb moment. Oh, the Father, let me tell you about the Father. Let me tell you what he's done who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what Paul's saying. Church, Midtown, I want you to be full, filled up with the knowledge of his will. What's his will? Well, he's already made known what kind of person he wants us to be and to grow into. But you know what else his will is? What he's done. This is what the king has decreed. This is what the king, out of his will, has willed, has decreed into existence. None of this happens in these three verses. None of 12 through 14 happens if God doesn't will it. None of this goes down if God is not the prime mover. None of 12 through 14 is achieved if God isn't the active one. A king is decreeing. And when a king decrees, it happens. And just about all of verses 12 through 14 is centered around verse 13. And here's what verse 13 is saying. Again, this is kingly language. Notice the kingly language in his decretive will. Verse 13, if you belong to Jesus, you've been delivered from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. So the point of all of this is that in his decretive will, you have a new king. That's what it means for members of his kingdom to step into his decretive will. I've been brought into a new kingdom. And guess who made that happen? Your father, the king. 
Listen to these active verbs that Paul lists when he starts talking about what God has decreed, what God has done. Listen to the active verbs on behalf of the king and the passive reception of those verbs from the recipients. Listen to the inactivity of the members of the kingdom and the activity of your king, the father, doing this for you. He's qualified you, he's rescued you, qualified you, rescued you, delivered you, redeemed you, and forgiven you. Do you know who made all of those things happen? Do you know who decreed that those things would take place and then worked and achieved and accomplished that so that it would be true for you? Your new king did. You've been transferred into his kingdom. Let me tell you what the king decrees for members of his kingdom. He's qualified them. He's redeemed them. He's, he's forgiven them. He's delivered them. This is what the will of God is. This is what he has done. This is what he has willed for his people. This is what he has accomplished for his people. This is what he decreed that should take place and then he did it himself. He has willed them to accomplish for you. He has assured them. He, God is the only being in the universe that has a complete free will. He knew whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Let me tell you what that king did with his totally autonomous free will. He used that will to accomplish something for you, to qualify you, to rescue you, to transfer you, to deliver you, to redeem you, and to forgive you. That's what your king did. That's what your king decreed. Go back to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night he was betrayed, he's in the garden. His disciples are falling asleep on him. He's sweating blood. You know what he prays? To God the Father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. What's God the Father's will? Do you know what it is? To crush the Son. Why? So that he could qualify you, redeem you, forgive you, and deliver you. It's the will of God, the will of your Father, to crush Jesus so that he could lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That's what your king has done with his will. And I wish we could spend, we, we could spend months, but I wish we could spend all morning talking about all of these qualifications, all of these decrees of God. So I just want to just camp out on one for a little bit. This first one caught my heart's attention this week and I couldn't get away from it. The first thing Paul says that God has decreed, that God has done, that God has willed into existence for members of his kingdom is that he's qualified you. Why would Paul need to remind the Colossian church, why would Paul need to remind Midtown that God has qualified them? Is it possible that Fleming Rutledge, my 85-year-old crush, theological crush, is, uh, is right when she says, the default of the human heart is to wake up every morning in an attempt to qualify itself? You woke up this morning and you, without even trying, just by breathing, the scales were, were in front of you to be balanced or imbalanced. And what you set out to do this morning was to qualify yourself. But is it possible that when you put your head on your pillow at night and you read back over your day and your mind, you feel dis, 
or unqualified? Is it possible that when you lose your temper on your child, you feel dis or unqualified? Is it possible that when people in your industry have more success than you, you feel dis or unqualified? Is it possible that when you compare yourself to people on social media, you feel dis or unqualified? Is that possible? Is it possible that you walked in here this morning feeling either dis or unqualified and as you run through the tapes in your mind, you're not sure how the scales have been balanced this morning so far? So on that front, let's see how qualified you feel. When you stand with you, let's see how qualified you are on your own. How many times have you not loved your spouse the way that you've been called to? How many times have you longed for intimacy and lusted after someone that didn't belong to you? How many times have you avoided someone in conversation because they're hard to talk to or they're annoying in your eyes? How many times have you harbored bitterness in your heart towards someone who has hurt you? How many times have you looked down on someone who you thought was more messed up or more broken than you? How many times have you been lazy in your call as an employee, husband, mother, spouse, or friend? How many times have your sins come to haunt you and in the shame of that moment, you let your shame drive you to do something more heinous than the original sin? How many times have you entered a fantasy world and imagined a life that was totally different from your own? How many times have you felt disqualified? Because if any of those things are true, you have now disqualified yourself from all of those roles and all of those calls. How many times have you broken your marriage vows in your heart? How many times have you murdered someone in your heart according to Jesus? Still feel qualified? And then let me tell you where Paul is leading us. That person, the one that we just asked questions to and you had to answer honestly in your own heart, that person, God says, because of God's decretive will, what God has willed and accomplished and done for those in Christ, God looks at that very person that just answered all those questions and guess what he says? Justified, qualified to be in my kingdom. Because it is on the shoulders of Jesus not yours, that all of your sins lie. You have been qualified by the king who is also your father and he has done the qualifying. And that's just one of the things that God has decreed. What has God done? What has his will accomplished for me? What has the father's will done for me? He's decreed that because of Jesus, I would be qualified in his kingdom not even mentioning the fact that you've been rescued, delivered, redeemed, and forgiven. So here's Paul's question to you. Do you have knowledge of that? Do you have understanding and wisdom, which is what he says, I'll pray that you be filled up with the knowledge of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Do you have understanding about God's will, what his will has decreed for you? Do you know how to apply his will of what he's accomplished to your life? Because here's the point. The most ultimate things about your life, the most ultimate cosmic realities about your existential self, the most ultimate realities can't change. Because the most ultimate reality is, is am I qualified or not? Have I been rescued or not? Have I been delivered? Have I been redeemed? Have I been forgiven? And God says, yes, I decreed it, so it happened. And so because the ultimate things in your life can't change, the most ultimate things in your life can't change, when you step into God's decretive will, guess what this experience is like when you go to make decisions? You're free now. You're safe now. You're secure now. 
Because no matter where you hit on this bullseye, no matter where you hit over here, guess what's not changing about you? Guess what can't change about you? Because the ultimate things have already been settled. And so even if you walk through door A when you were supposed to walk through door B, guess what? Still qualified, still redeemed, still delivered, still forgiven. Nothing can change about ultimate realities. So when you and I come to making decisions, whether or not where, it's you're, going to, where you're going to lunch or what city you should live in, guess how you get to approach that? Totally and utterly free because you cannot make a decision in your life that will stop God from being good to you. You can't, you're not that important. You cannot make a decision that will stop his decrees from happening and he's already accomplished it. And so the pressure's off from hitting the bullseye. You'll probably miss a bunch and guess what's gonna happen? You will still be underneath his decretive will. If no decision that you can make in your life threatens the decrees of God, what are you afraid of? Or in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can mere mortals do to me? See, walking in God's will looks a lot more like walking in the freedom and the safety and the security of our new king and less and less about, did I make the perfect decision and am I here and am I supposed to be here and did I marry the right person and do we have the right number of kids and am I doing the right vocation and should I not have gone to Belmont because it's a waste of money and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Sorry, it's cruel. It was not in my notes, I promise. The story was told one time because this is, when I'm free to make decisions, now when, when I... <laughs> If God is trying to call me and get me somewhere like David or Moses or Jonah, if God wants me to walk through door A, but I walk through door B, he's so good, he's gonna get me there. He's gonna make sure that happens. You're so free now in making choices. You're so free now in not having to hit the bullseye that you should just make a choice because you can't make a choice that's gonna stop him from being good to you. The story goes, or the story's been told, the, the illustration's been given to me years ago. But imagine that like your dad brings you to Baskin Robbins and shows you all 31 flavors and says, hey, brought you to get some ice cream. And what we do is we go, oh, but what flavor do you want me to get? And do you want me to get mint chocolate chip or do you want me to get Rocky Road? I wanna get the, and he's going, just pick a flavor. I brought you here for, you're free now. Because if you, if, you, if you are in your father's care, if you're walking in his preceptive will and you're underneath his decrees, you can't make a wrong decision. He'll still be good to you, even if you miss the bullseye a little bit. Bullseye doesn't, isn't real. It's not there. Eat some ice cream and have some fun. You're free. You're safe. You're secure. And now, since we're free, now, since we've been qualified, rescued, delivered, redeemed, and forgiven, because God's decretive will has accomplished all this for us, now, as members of this kingdom, guess this, this is so simple and profound, <laughs> Because of his decretive will, I begin to walk in his perceptive will. Here's how that works. Do you know that the more you and I fall into and in meditating on and obsessing over, just for example, the fact that he's qualified me and Jesus to belong to his kingdom, the more I fall into that, guess what I'll be? More joyful. I will be. Guess what happens when I know that I've got a new king and my king is on the throne and none of the decisions that I've made or none of the decisions that my family has made can stop him from being my new king? Guess what'll happen to me? I'll be patient in life. 
knowing that I don't have to make all this, all these roads come together and heal all the brokenness and make sure that everything's done perfectly. Guess what will happen the more that I know that I'm forgiven? When I know that all of my sins, past, present, and future, lie on the shoulders of Jesus, guess what I'll be? I'll be way more grateful. Like, do you see how this feeds this? And Paul's saying, I want you to be full of the knowledge of his will. It'll free you. It'll mature you. It'll grow you up. Now the pressure is off from the small, 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 self-focused version of God's will. When really all I'm thinking about is the self, members of God's kingdom are free, free as sons and daughters of the king, the king who has willed himself to work for our good. Let's pray.